Scripture reading today will be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Seven verses. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Thanks, Jason. Let me encourage you to go to the book of First Peter. We're going to be studying First uh, Peter next several weeks. Uh, this is going to be in page 1014 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. I had Jason read that, uh, the text in Matthew, uh, to remind us of, of Peter and uh, the character that he was and the character he had. We, um, we often think of Peter, we remember him for some of his faults, Maybe he's a little bit impetuous, uh, how he was quick to speak. Often it seems in the, in the scriptures, of course we know of his denials. Um, but Peter was uh, a, a tremendous disciple of the Lord. And that text we just read, I won't get into it, it's, it's, out, of, it's, it's out of the scope of what we're going to talk about today. But when he said that, you know, I give you the keys to the kingdom, that was to to Peter, but then to the disciples, and then it goes on to the entire church, and that's a whole study we can do another time of what those keys are and what they mean. But the point is, is that um, Peter, he made a confession about who Christ was, a bold confession. Um, for us, you know, to think about it, it like, okay, yeah, of course, he, he recognized Jesus, who he was. Remember that Jesus looked like Peter, Okay, in a sense that they were of the same generation, same area, things like this. So imagine someone who looks like you claiming to be the Messiah, and you say you are the Messiah. I mean that that was amazing. In fact, uh, my wife she just uh, whispered to me, uh, and I didn't make the connection here for a little bit here, but uh, she goes, "You remember being there." And uh, in 2005, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Israel, and we were there. I can't remember how long it was, but uh, and we were in Caesarea Philippi, and where this was, and I was asked to lead a devotional in Caesarea Philippi, where this place was, where they believe it was a very similar area where Peter would have looked at Jesus and says, "You are the Christ, the Son of God." It's a very powerful moment. So I wanted us to be reminded of that because of who Peter is. Because a lot of times in our minds, we only think of some of the more humorous sides of Peter or the things that we can relate to really well, uh, putting our, our foot in our mouth a lot. You know, I think it was John MacArthur who, in one of his writings about the disciples, said, you know, I think Peter's mouth was shaped like a foot, um, you know, uh, doing those types of, you know, just impetuous statements and stuff like this, of course, the denials. But remember that he was a tremendous servant of God. 
Okay, so we're going to study through this book a little bit here. Let me give it just a couple words of introductory, though, if I could, um, and then we'll, we'll we'll dive into into the message here. There's an overall theme in the book, and that would be like this idea of hope in the midst of suffering. Okay, hope in the midst of suffering, and we're going to see that unpacked over the next several weeks here. And and, and a couple of the things that we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about in that related to that is that a Christian's relationship with a non-Christian culture that's going to come up quite a bit in this book here, and so this is going to be very relevant to us, as how should a Christian respond to a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity? Uh, what, what are, how are we to interact with rulers and leaders? How are we to interact with each other? How are we to deal with when um, uh, it is unpopular to be a Christian? How do we live in that culture? How do we live in that context, right? That's going to come out several times. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, of course, but the, throughout the whole book, there's going to be a theme that's going to be unpacked. Another thing is that um, there's a commentary I've been reading, um, new one I picked up, highly recommended, and it's a new addition to it. Um, and, and, and the woman who wrote it, it is, uh, she's a, just a tremendous scholar in this area, and her name's Karen Jobes. I think you pronounce it J-O-B-E-S. I think it's Jobes. Um, and maybe there's a, it's a foreign name that has a, a, a better sounding pronunciation to it. I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, my wife who speaks French, she could be yelling and screaming at, you know, calling people insults, and people say, it's so beautiful. So, so, so nice. I have a friend who speaks German, and she could have been saying, Jeremy, you're the greatest guy in the world. And people are like, man, she's ticked off at you. <laughs> you know, languages, I don't know how things pronounce them, sounds different, so I don't know what this lady's name. But here's what she had to say, and, I th- and you're going to hear this unpacked several times because it's very profound, is that one of the themes that comes out in this book is that it is better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer than to sin. We're going to unpack that. Not, not so much in this sermon here, but over. I'm just trying to give you an idea of where we're heading with this book here. It's really good. This same commentator that I just mentioned, she had this to say. It says, you know, it's easy to confuse vicarious atonement with vicarious suffering and think that because Jesus suffered, Christians do not have to. Vicari- if, if you're not familiar with those terms, vicarious atonement is the understanding that Jesus died in our place. Okay, so the atonement, the atoning for our sins, the payment for our sins, the covering of our sins, that Jesus did that in our place, vicariously, he did that. So uh, that's what our hope is in, that we don't have to atone for our sins, that Jesus did that. So it's a vicarious in the place of atonement. That's what it's talking about there. And what she brings is, she says, it's easy to confuse the fact that vicarious atonement with vicarious suffering. Is that, well, Jesus suffered, yeah, but it's not always just in our place. And yes, he did suffer in our place, so I'm not, I'm not teaching that he didn't, but almost to the point of where, like, a vicarious atonement is that we, we don't atone for our sins, only Jesus does. But we do have to suffer. We do have to suffer in the sin-cursed world. And I think it's a profound statement there that says sometimes we confuse this and, and we, we, we don't want suffering at all and, and we don't like it at all. Uh, and, you know, I, I, just yesterday I got news about some friends who are going through some difficult time and we got another friend that's been walking through this tremendous health thing for, for months now. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, people suffer. Things that are going on in your life, things are going on in my life, and it's like, how do we deal with this? That's what this book is going to be very helpful for us to do. So it's as confusing, as disappointing that it may be, suffering is to be expected. So how do we deal with that? 
Here's what I want to unpack today in today's sermon is this right here. Knowing your true identity is a basis for hope in the midst of suffering, okay? Knowing your true identity is a basis for hope in the midst of suffering. That's what I hope to unpack today in the sermon, and hopefully you can follow along in the text, and and, uh, we'll be better as a result of spending time together. Let me pause, ask God's blessing, and uh, then we'll continue on. Father, thank you um, for the opportunity to open your word, talk about it, preach from it, teach from it. This is a tremendous opportunity that I have. I, I, I don't take it for granted. I'm so thankful for it. But one of the things that I, I'm so aware of is the fact that I need your guidance. I need your spirit to, to help me say the things that are, are right and true and biblical and faithful to the text. And that would be helpful to those who are listening, whether here or online. God, we, we want... That the time that we spend together here to be profitable, and only your spirit can do that. And so, Lord, we pray that we would put aside the distractions. We pray that we put aside everything else, and and you know the, the the silencing of the notifications, so to speak, and just just focus in on this text of scripture and listen to what your spirit has for us. And so, this is what we're asking for because you receive great glory and honor when that happens, and uh, that's our desire today. So. May this text that we have before us be used by your spirit to to teach us and to make us more like Christ. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen. So, knowing your true identity is a basis for hope in the midst of suffering. I've broken this down two points today uh, in, in the sermon here, and we're gonna, they're very simple, okay, very simple. First of all, we have uh, Peter's choice. Now, what do I mean by Peter's choice? So, how did he choose to be identified? What was his choice term? He could have chosen to be identified in a lot of different ways. He could have been, you know, uh, 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 talked about as a, uh, as a fisherman. He could have been talked about as a friend. He could talk about so many different things, but he chose the word apostle. There, and I don't want to make too much out of it, but if you read in verse 1, let me read the text actually because we haven't read this one yet. Normally it is read, but let me read verses 1 and 2, and, and, and then we'll, we'll get back into this. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so here he is. We have this introduction to this book here. And a lot of times we kind of just skip over that and kind of get into the meat of the letter. But we do that to our, 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 to our, our, um, to our peril, so to speak, uh, as a really strong word, but to, to, uh, uh, it's really helpful for us to stop and, and think about what he's saying on the front end of this letter. Um, we believe in what's called the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. Uh, what that means is it talks about every word and all of it has been inspired by God. And so if we have this here, then it's inspired by God. And what is it for us? So here Paul, excuse me, Peter is saying that he wanted to be known as the apostle of Jesus Christ here. Now what does that mean? What is the apostle? Well, I, I, I guess the, the question comes is, is like, well, before we get to that, it's like, well, how would you want to be remembered? Have you ever thought about that? How would you want to, to people to remember you? And hey, you know I do uh, uh, several funerals you know, for the community and things like that. And, and it's interesting how people want to be remembered, sometimes in a verbal way or sometimes it's just by uh, what was most important to them. Uh, Rosa Parks uh, uh, reportedly said that she said, quote, I would like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so other people could be free. Um, so we know that, you know, she... <laughs> 
didn't give up her seat in the bus and, uh, you know, from, you know, started a, uh, you know, was used to start a, you know, a civil rights movement, right? And in some ways or contribute to it, I should say. Um, you know, that's how she wanted to be remembered. Uh, other people have different ways of being remembered. Actor Macaulay Culkin said this, uh, if you guys remember Home Alone in his days, he had this aspiration. I hope I'm remembered as the king of the world, the nobleman who united all nations on the earth. But that probably won't happen. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it won't. <laughs> um, you know, how do you want to be remembered? Something to think about here. Paul, excuse me, I keep saying Paul. Peter here is the apostle. This is the idea of someone who has been sent, okay? So there's the idea of a mission here. The word literally means sent one. And so it's this idea of, of the, his mission in life was to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, 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 but, but that probably wasn't the, mo, the, the main reason why he used the word apostle there, although it carries the connotation of that he was on a mission, on a purpose. It was more about probably a formal designation of authority. He, he, was, he, was, he was saying that what I'm about to tell you to these people that he was writing to, he says it's coming from an authoritative position. And he wasn't do, doing that in a way of, of you, know, um, you know, trying to look down on people or flex or anything like that. It was just it was an idea of saying this is official, okay? It'd be kind of like if you got a, a, a letter with letterhead from the White House on it. You're like, oh, okay, you know, this is official type thing. And that's what he was doing here, saying, okay, I've got an authority here. But it wasn't, you know, it's interesting about Peter, it wasn't just authority though that it was his own, it was not in his own merit, but he talks about that he was, excuse me, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't his, his own doing, his own merit that he was standing before the people that he was writing. It wasn't his own authority, it was that of Jesus Christ. Now you say, okay, this is kind of basic, I, I, I get this, but here, here's, you got to think about it. There's a reason why I had Jason read from Matthew, because he had this moment, right, this moment where he stood and he said, he said, you know, other people are saying this about you, Jesus, but I'm telling you, you are the Christ, you are the Son, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And Jesus says, man, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. God has revealed this to you. Peter understood that. But you also know other things about Peter. You also know that he was one who denied Jesus as well. So really, Peter understood the full spectrum here of what it meant to follow Christ. So on one end, he, he actually denied three different times knowing Jesus. In fact, someone came up to him while he was warming himself by the fire. This is when Jesus is being uh, led away to be executed and stand trial and all this stuff. And so he's, he's trying to get close as possible and he's standing and warming himself by a fire. And someone comes up to him and says, wait a minute, I, I recognize you. You're one of his friends. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I am not him. I do not know this man. And he, and he, he gets to like, like bring oaths and curses on him. So like basically saying, you know, Cursed be upon me. Like basically you hear someone say, may lightning strike me dead right here if that is true, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, I didn't know. I don't know this guy. I don't know him at all. This is Peter who said earlier, you are the rock. You are, I mean, you are, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus says, you, you, you're the rock because of this. He understood this. So on the other side, then he, we know that he, he died for Christ. He was willing to be beaten for Christ. We know this so time and time. What happened? Why, why, why did he go through so many different things? Well, I'll tell you, the big thing was the resurrection. The big thing was that Peter understood who Jesus was when Jesus rose from the dead. All those questions that Peter had, and, and, and he was ashamed. Of course he was ashamed of denying Jesus. He loved Jesus. I don't doubt that at all. But remember after that, when Jesus died on the cross, they put him in the tomb, 
Peter went fishing. And then Jesus was on the shore. I don't know if you remember the story. Jesus appears on the shore. And Peter sees him. And says, who is that? That's, that's Jesus. And so what does Peter do? He just dives overboard and just starts swimming to shore. Doesn't even row back. I love that. He just dives over, swims to shore. And Jesus and Peter have this beautiful conversation on the, on the beach there. That was revolutionary to Peter. It was like, you, you, we just see a different Peter. You turn the page from John, and you go into the book of Acts, and you see, who is this guy, Peter? He's preaching strong. He's back. And, and What happened? He saw the resurrected Christ. That's what happened. So why am I making a big deal about this? Well, here's the reason why I'm making a big deal about this. The one um, who denied even knowing Jesus three different times is now choosing Jesus as his main source of identity here. See, Peter did deny Jesus. He capitulated, capitulated the culture, the hostile culture about Jesus, and, but he later endures the persecution. And what he is saying is having experienced each end of the spectrum because he was beaten for him. He knew that he was probably going to die for Christ. Having experienced both ends of the, 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 the spectrum, he says that suffering for Jesus is better than following the culture. That's what Peter says. So I gave you a commentator's quote earlier about, hey, listen, we shouldn't confuse the vicarious, vicarious atonement with the vicarious suffering. We have to suffer. But it makes so much more, there's so much more power and punch to that, that truth, when we see what Peter has to say about it. Peter says, yeah, I, I denied. And I, I followed culture. But I'm telling you, I've also, hey, I'm willing to make him my full source of identity here. Why? Because he understood who Jesus was. He understood who he was in Jesus Christ. And so in this first point here, this idea is, you know, the question is like, oh, how do you want to be remembered? How do you think people will remember you? And what relationship or how much of your identity is going to be tied to the person of Jesus Christ? So for Peter here, he says, everything. I want everyone to know that I am connected to Christ. So something to think about. What, what, what is your true identity? Because that is going to help us when those moments of suffering come. Okay, so I told you those two points. First one is Peter, his choice of designation, choice of identity here. But then we've got to talk about who Peter is writing to, okay? So who's Peter's audience here, all right? Well, we see there's a couple designations to them. There were, it says that they were the, to those, this is again in verse 1, who are elect exiles in the dispersion, and then they give several geographical locations there. So the question is, or we, we, one of the things we need to talk about, we're going to talk about two terms here. The first one is this idea of exiles. Now, what is he talking about here? And this is going to, uh, it's going to be an, interest, uh, an important concept that's going to come up in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he talks about keeping their conduct uh, 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 among the Gentiles honorable. And so, so we have this idea, this, this, this theme of, of being an exile that's going to come up several times here. What does he mean that way? Well, have you ever felt like you were someplace where you did not belong? Have you ever walked into a situation you're like, I don't think I belong here. That's happened to me multiple times, okay? The one that stands out to me, I, I, was, I was probably about 20 years old, maybe 21. I think I was 20. Um, you know, a church had hired me to be their youth pastor. and So I was a youth pastor, and then I, I, was, I was staying with a family in the church because I was commuting while I was finishing up college and stuff. And, and um, the family that I was staying with, they, um, 
they they had a daughter and who was in the hospital getting ready to have a child. But then the, they also had a parent that was in the same hospital going through um, some difficult things. And so I, I, I wanted to go visit the dad in the hospital and, and visit him. And so I did. So I went and I visited him. And, and, and you know, again, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm young. Um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what this even means to be a pastor in a lot of ways. And there was an older pastor that I served with, um, you know, wise man, been a pastor. I mean, he was in his 70s when I, when I teamed up with him. And um, uh, so those of you in the 70s bracket right now, you're like, he wasn't old. What are you talking about? Um, but uh, he, 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 I remember one of the things he said, listen, he goes, I would go on visiting with him and things like that. And one time we were in the hospital and he said, listen, you always tell him you're a pastor. You always tell him that. Always tell them you're a pastor. I said, okay, why is that? He said, well, because, you know, sometimes they won't let you see people and things like that. But if you tell me you're a pastor, you can get anywhere. I said, I remember that. So I go up and, and uh, I'm visiting this guy and I, I visit him and I tell him I'm a pastor. And I say, okay, you can go see him. And so I go see him and I'm talking with him and things, the time's going. And I know that his granddaughter is in the hospital about ready to have a baby. And so I'm like, I'm going to go say hi to the rest of the family um, because I want to say hi, I'm right here. So I go up to the nurse's station. I'm like, hey, I need to find, you know, so-and-so. She's having a baby here. And uh, I just want to go, go visit with the family a little bit. And so the question came was, well, who are you? I'm prepared. I'm a pastor. He says, you're a pastor. I said, yeah, I'm the pastor of her church. And you want to go visit her? I said, yeah, I, I, I do. Okay. Just follow me. So I follow her, and I'm thinking, this thing worked, all right? This actually worked, you know? I can get there. So follow and then she goes, okay, go into the room. I open the door. She is in labor. <laughs> right there. Family looks at me. I walk in, I'm like, I'm praying for you. <laughs> I mean, I, in that moment, I did not belong there. That was not a place I wanted to be. And so, so I, later on, I see her at church you know, a couple weeks later. I'm like, I am so sorry. She's like, ah, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. I need to say I'm sorry here. <laughs> okay. I did not mean to do this. I was in a spot that I just do not want to be. I did not belong there at all. It was very obvious to me that I did not belong there at all. Okay, Now, sometimes it's obvious that we don't belong there, and sometimes it's not so obvious. Have you ever been in a situation where someone really didn't belong there, but they thought they belonged there? Uh, yeah, I could probably come up with a story where I was that person too at some point. But the point is this, is that when we talk about the exiles here, sometimes what we think about, we're thinking about, oh, okay, they're kind of like a tourist. No, 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 it's, it's different than that. It, it's, it's that they, they're beyond being a tourist. They're there for a while, although there's this sense that they're not from there or they don't belong there in some ways. Um, this idea of feeling out of place that's what he says that, that these are the people that he's writing to. These are people that, that they should feel out of place. Now, where were they from? Well, we got a map here that we'll show you here. Um, so over here, uh, these are all the different uh, kind of regions of the Roman Empire and things like this and during this time. And so, of course, you have down here, you have Jerusalem down here, this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is kind of where a lot of the events of biblical history happened that we read about in the New Testament here, um, up by, you know, the Sea of Galilee is up over here somewhere. Uh, but the point is, is that these regions that we read about, 
uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, you know, they're all right here, okay? So these are all the areas, these are regions, and you'll recognize some of the city names like Philadelphia and Ephesus. You'll recognize some of those uh, from other stories and things like that. Antioch, of course, is a, is a main, uh, main city, Iconium. Uh, Paul had a ministry, ministry trip to Iconium. This is the region here that what, when Peter's writing, he says these are elect exiles of the dispersion, meaning that they had been dispersed, that they were in these areas, although they didn't really feel like uh, uh, they weren't naturally from that area. Uh, um, this area covers roughly about 129,000 square miles. To put it into the context, California is 159, about 159,000 square miles. So it's right around the size, you know, to give you the context of, of how big this area is. And, and that's what he's, he's writing to the, these areas here. Again, this first message is a lot of kind of spade work, a ground, you know, getting the, the foundation for the whole series. I, I did want to mention this. Um, it, this is not really related, but... Um, I used to think, you remember the, the, the word, the, the place there, Bithynia? You see at the end of verse 1 there in our text? Uh, does that name sound familiar at all? Does anyone recognize that name? You may recognize it from Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Paul is on his mission trip. He's going on a second mission trip, and he's trying to go to different places, but the Spirit of God is telling him not to go to the places. He says, I want to go here. And the Spirit of God says, no, don't go there. One of those places was Bithynia. And I remember thinking when I was reading through Acts 16, like, why was it that God was not allowing Paul to go to these places? I mean, isn't that what we want is to go and bring the gospel to as many places as possible? Why is God saying don't go there? And, of course, then that's the Macedonian call, and then... Paul ends up going to Philippi is, is how it goes. Then I remember when I came to this text here, I thought, wait a minute. We don't know how the gospel got to Bithynia. We think maybe in, in Acts chapter 2, we think that at Pentecost, there are some people there at Pentecost that maybe they took it back. But even then, that, 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 that data is, is not as, as solid as one might think. So, so the, the, the question comes is, well, how did they get the gospel there? The question is we don't know, or the answer is we don't know. And it doesn't really matter. So when I was wrestling with, God, why would you close the door to this people that need the gospel here? Then I come to Peter and I see, this is this total side note here. I just see, wait a minute, God has a plan. And God is working his plan, even though I don't have to understand or I don't know it all. So a little side note there, when you put some geographical things together, you see what God is doing here. So where are these people from? They're from the exiles of, of these areas here. They're, they're not tourists. They're more like resident aliens, if you will, um, this idea of, of when you say they're exiles, this idea they're not from around here. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've visited someplace and someone heard the Midwestern accent that we have and said, you're not from around here, are you? I remember when we moved to Rhode Island, and if you've ever been to, to New England, you know that words are pronounced a little bit different there. I remember the youth group there said, you know, my first or second Sunday or Wednesday there, they're like, Pastor Jeremy, you talk funny. I was like, I at least pronounced the letters correctly, you know. Yeah, pak, the ka, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's like, you're not from here, are you, right? It's sometimes given away. You know, when someone is out of place, there, there's like an oddity about people living in a new place. Maybe they're not sure of local terms or customs. I remember the first time I mentioned to someone that I didn't think Culver's food was that great. Um, Wisconsin people love Culver's, I found out. Um, you know, it's like, okay, all right. You know, you're not from around. It's a little odd. Why would you think that, right? Why would you think that? It's a little odd, 
you know, for someone who's in exile here. Um, uh, there's also not just an oddity, but there's also appeal about people living in a new place. It's like, oh, so they're bringing in different things and stuff like this. So there's, there's this balance here, and, and, and there's a purpose for me saying this, is that there's an oddity, but there's also an appeal here. And Christians living as exiles should really produce both. There should be oddities and appeal to outsiders. There should be some things that as we're living in a place that we don't naturally, our homeland is in heaven, right? That, that's what we're told. Our citizenship is in heaven. So here we are. We're exiles, just like the people that, that uh, Peter's writing to. We should consider ourselves as exiles. Remember, the whole point of the sermon here is talking about that our true identity, embracing our true identity, is what brings hope, is a basis for hope in the midst of suffering. And that is, is for us, is that we have to embrace the fact that we are resident aliens here. That this is not our natural home. That this is not where our citizenship lies. And so what that does is that produces some oddities sometimes with how we act and how we talk and what we do. But there's also an appeal to that as well. Uh, you can look at like the Sermon on the Mount there. It was a Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Of how he talks about how we live in a culture here. This book is going to talk, as First Peter here, is going to help us through of how we live in a culture that is against Christ here. There's some oddities, but then there's also some, some, some things that are appealing to, to uh, the world about it. It's really a strange position to be in here. Um, C.S. Lewis, um, he, he talks about this a little bit. He talks about how, having, a, having not just a, a, an earthly mindset. In his book, Mere Christianity, if you haven't read his book, Mere Christianity, it's really good. Uh, there's a few theological things that I would squabble with him over. Uh, but, uh, but overall, it's just a, a great, great book. And here's what, here's what Lewis had to say. Um, he says, The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this, meaning this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That's good. That's good. It was the fact that they were, they were understood of who they were and where their citizenship lied, that they had an impact in this culture here. But if they were so focused on this culture here, then they're not going to have any impact at all. And they're going to miss their whole point of being on this earth. And so, the, again, being this, ex, this, this exile here, it should produce like this oddity. So the world should find us a bit strange. And if the world doesn't find us a bit strange, then we're probably not living as an exile. And again, I'm not talking about superficial things like, okay, so we have to wear really weird clothes or we have to have or whatever. That's not the point we're talking about. It's just, just, it's just how someone lives and decisions that they make and, and what's most important to what they value. That's enough to produce some of that oddity. Like, why, why are they not so moved by this. In fact, later on in this book here, we're going to see um, in um, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, with respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, debauchery and they malign you. Later on, he says, verse 12, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you. Hey, what he's saying, he says, people are going to be confused by you. If you're living as an exile, if you're living as a, your identity is solely wrapped up in who Jesus Christ is, that's going to produce some, some, some oddities there. And we have to be willing to accept that. But sometimes we're so afraid about that and we want to fit in and we want to be liked and we want a reputation attack that we're afraid to be odd. And we've missed what it means to live in an exile's life. But at the same time, then, if we're not, there's not an appeal to us, then we're not living as exiles either. 
Because it's, it produces both. This idea of, yeah, they are a bit strange, but man, they forgive each other. That would be nice to be in a culture where, you know, people just were patient with one another. They are not constantly trying to push each other down to promote themselves. That's weird, but boy, I would like to be part of that. You see how it needs to produce both? Living as an exile? If we're not, if there's no appeal at all, then we're not living as exiles either. So we have to have both here. And Lewis's quote is helpful in this. Okay, we spent a lot of time talking about the whole idea of exiles. We need to talk about one thing. That this is going to be, uh, for some people, uh, you know, this very confusing. This idea of not only were they called uh, 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 exiles, but they were called elect exiles. Okay, so they were elect. Now, this gets into a realm of theology that some people are more comfortable with and some people are not comfortable with. I made a promise when I came here 10 years ago that I was just going to preach the text, okay? In fact, um, this is going to get into an area what some people call Calvinism, okay? And uh, I remember there was... um uh, I'll tell you the story. Uh, someone uh, came up to me when the, the, the church was thinking about hiring me and, and there was going to be a vote, and they said, um, yeah, we, we, we do not want a Calvinist for the next pastor uh, here. And I said, well, um, I think you're going to get one, okay? Yeah, I could have made some predestination jokes there. I didn't, okay? Um, I said, just because, you know, I said, but here's the thing, why is it? They said, well, we just don't see, we don't want that constantly being you know, taught all the time and stuff like that. I said, well, here's my promise to you. I said, my promise to you is because I believe that the Bible teaches man's responsibility, okay, and man has to make a choice. The Bible teaches that. I said, but the Bible also teaches that God is sovereign and that God elects people, okay? So the Bible teaches both. I said, do you agree with that? They said, yeah. I said, I don't understand how it all works together, but here's my promise to you, is that when I'm in a text of Scripture that emphasizes man's responsibility, that's going to be what I emphasize in the sermon. But if I'm in a text of Scripture that talks about God's election, then that's going to be the emphasis of it. So I will let the text determine the emphasis of the sermon. What do you think about that? They said, good, good. That sounds good. I said, okay. I said, here's the deal. After the vote next week, you know, if there's two people that vote against me, I know it's you, okay? All right? And we all laughed, and it was fine, everything like that. Two people did vote against me. <laughs> so I don't know if it was them or something. May not have been. I don't know. But it was just kind of a funny thing. I was like, maybe I shouldn't have made that joke. Okay. But the point is, is, that, is that that's been my theme for 10 years here of like, we'll let the text determine the emphasis of, the, uh, of what we make in the sermon here. That's the safest way to do this, right? So here we have a text that talks. It's very clear about this election here. Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. What is this talking about here? What? Well, this is what makes them exiles, is the fact that they are um, elect, the word has the idea of chosen, okay? They're chosen by God. What is this talking about here? Well, the verse helps us here. It says they're elect exiles, tells us where, and then it says according to, so that's going back to the election and the exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that could be by means of, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ in the sprinkling with his blood, okay? So this is how Peter unpacks this for us here. What does this mean here? Let's walk through this in the next few minutes quickly here. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So what does that mean, according to the foreknowledge of God? Um, There was a time where I understood this word to mean, okay, what God does is he looks down the, the, the corridors of history and he sees who's going to choose him. And so then he chooses then based on that, that foreknowledge, he sees it ahead of time and does that. Okay, so for several years, that, that was the way I interpreted it. The problem is, is that linguistically, the, world, the word can't mean that. And it doesn't mean that. And so it actually has the idea of, no, he's more of a determining factor in this. Um, well, again, uh, one commentator just says one. I go back to the same one that I was using before. Um, and this is consistent. Uh, with many commentators and uh, Greek theologians and scholars. The New Testament understand the understanding of God's foreknowledge of his people indicates that God did, that should be did, sorry, did not simply observe them or have information about them at some prior time in history. Instead, God chose them with according to or consistent with his plan and purpose long before God formed a people to be his own. And so... Um, then she goes on to point out this, is that 1 Peter 1.20 states that the redemptive role of Christ was also foreknown to God. We see this according to the foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, verse 20. Talking about Jesus. Before the creation of the world. Therefore, verses 20 and 20, uh, 2 and 20, express correlating thoughts that even before creation, God had chosen both the people who would be redeemed and the agent who would redeem him. Now, this is complex. And you say, well, wait a minute here. What happens to man's free will here? Well, the point is, is that the Bible does teach that man has to choose to follow God. That's the reason why when I preach, I say, you need, today's the day of salvation. You need to accept Christ as your Savior. And I'm consistent with the Bible teaching on this. But we have to understand that what Peter's giving us here, and the other texts will deal with this, Ephesians is one, uh, there's others, that, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 48 is another one. These are all texts where the author in that point, what they're doing is they're changing the perspective from a human's perspective to God's perspective. They're showing us how God sees this, okay? God sees us as according to his plan that he's working. In our understanding that we're choosing, okay, and we have to make that choice. But in God's perspective, he says, yeah, before the foundation of the earth, I've, I've, I've foreordained this. You say, well, how does that work together? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. I, I, I don't. I don't have a way to fully explain how those two things work together, but the Bible teaches it, and so that's what I teach. Okay? And there's other things that we just don't understand. I mean, how Jesus walked on water. I don't know how Jesus did that. I mean, scientifically, how does if you know how does Jesus do that? I don't know. There were some theories that the that in trying to explain it is that the the water actually got cold. It was really cold, and that Jesus was actually in ice. There's a thin layer of ice that he was on that, and then the rest of the water was not um, uh, a frozen, but he was on ice. No, the Bible says he walked on water, and he wasn't on this little patch of ice, right? You know, Jonah being swallowed. I mean, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, how the world was spoken into existence. I don't understand how all those things happened. But the Bible teaches that they did. 
And so we believe it. Okay, so when it comes to this, this is where I'm at. It's like, okay, I, I just have to believe both here. So according to the foreknowledge of God, this is how that someone's salvation was, is that they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This is what the text says. This is the hope that they have. Again, the reason why I'm spending time on this is because when we recognize, wait a minute here, this is part of God's plan that I follow him. That brings me hope in the midst of suffering to say, okay, wait a minute. I've got this identity that God, before the foundations of the earth, has said that I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to do that because he's ordained it to be so. Again, I still have to make the choices. I still have to make the decisions to follow him. But God is working his sovereign plan as my life. That brings me a lot of comfort in the moments of suffering. You say, wait a minute. I am working out God's plan before the foundations of the earth. He says that not only is it chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, but by the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit. This is by the means of. It was the setting apart. That's what sanctification means. The setting apart of the Spirit is the Spirit of God that works in our hearts. And this inclusion of the Holy Spirit's work shows that salvation isn't just a human acceptance of God's salvation offer. Because if, if salvation were only a choice of man to accept or deny, then the role of the Holy Spirit seems unnecessary. But the Holy Spirit says, no, I'm going to make it so that you work in your heart and grant forgiveness, uh, repentance. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says that God may perhaps grant them repentance. Again, the person has to repent. The person has to actively choose to follow God. But at the same time, when we look and and there's times these biblical authors pull back the curtain a little bit and say, let me show you what's happening behind the scenes here. It's the Spirit of God is at work. And so if I'm in the midst of suffering, okay, going back to the reason for this message, if I'm going in the midst of suffering, I say, but God is at work in my life. And he's working his plan. And and what they do is not going to thwart this. And and what they're trying to accomplish is not going to, to hinder this because God is sovereign. That gives me hope in the midst of suffering. So according to, by the means of sanctification, but then to the obedience and the sprinkling of bread. Okay, so we are to obey for for obedience to Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to do. I I wish I had more time to unpack this a little bit more, but uh, I, I don't. Uh, this harkens back to Exodus chapter 24 and this idea of obedience and the sprinkling of blood. Really what's happening here was a covenantal sign. This is what, when, when Peter wrote this to these people and he says for obedience to Jesus Christ and the, for the sprinkling with his blood, there we would immediately thought of, oh, the Mosaic covenant. Okay, this covenant that God made with his people. So what really what Peter is doing here is he's just reminding them that they're part of God's covenantal family. They're God's, part of God's covenantal people is what he's doing by this. I wish I had more time to unpack this. So this brings up a few questions here when we talk about election and things like that. It's like, well, how do I know if I'm elect then? How do I know? Is there a way that I can know? I mean, what if, what if I want to be saved, but I'm not part of the elect? What does that mean? Well, the reality is that with the way the scriptures teach this is if you have any desire to follow God, then you don't have to worry about it, okay? You just don't have to worry about that. If you have a desire to follow God, that's coming from God drawing you, and so you don't have to worry about that. Um, I'll say this, is that there's no one that's ever going to be uh, you know, rejected or, or have to pay for eternity for their sins in hell. He says, boy, I really wish, I really wish that Jesus would have saved me. It's just, it's, that's not the case. Anyone who wants to follow Christ, so if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I want to follow Christ, okay, consider yourself part of God's elect and follow Christ. 
You say, what about other people? What about, how do I know if other people are? And some people will say, well, then what's the point of evangelism then? I mean, what's the point of that? Uh, uh, if God's going to save, who's going to save anyway? Then why do we evangelize? Well, number one, because we're told to, because we're the means by which God wants to accomplish his purpose. Okay? But the point is, is that we don't really care. C.H. Spurgeon, who was a uh, uh, you know, Calvinist, uh, great uh, Baptist preacher, in London, uh, in the 1800s, um, he said this one time, I'm paraphrasing, he said, listen, I don't go around lifting up the coattails of people to see if there's an E stamped on their back, okay, for elect. He says, this is how God's word. He goes, we tell the gospel to everybody and let God worry about that. And that's our response to that. We tell the gospel to everybody. It's not our business. Again, all this election stuff is just a way, a perspective that the New Testament offers. are saying, let me just show you how God's seen this for a second. Okay? But our perspective is that we follow Christ. We obey Christ. Our, we tell the gospel to everybody and let God worry about all those other things here. So we kind of had to d- dive into some of this stuff a little bit here, but the reason why is because when you read this, it's there. And what do we do with that? We have to explain it here. But can't you understand that how understanding our election and our exile actually brings hope in the midst of suffering? Because, because again, and this is a, another statement we'll probably unpack over the next several messages, but what we hope for informs what we live for. What we hope for informs what we live for. And so if we're hoping for the next life, if we say, listen, this life isn't about it, but I know because of God's sure promise through his election that I am going to be there, not because of my own worth, but because of what Christ has done, I am going to be in this next life here with him for all eternity. That changes how I live this life. That changes what's most important to me. So the point of this message today is really to get us this idea of how do we get a basis for hope in the midst of suffering? Well, we have to have who we are in Christ knocked down, locked down. And that is that it's by what he's done for us and that we are not of this world. And that should bring us hope.